Welcome back to another episode of The Frisian Advocate. I'm Angie DePoit. And I'm Scott Kellenhofer. Thanks for joining us today. Today we have a fantastic guest. We're really excited for you to hear her story. So we're talking with Tracy Alexander from The Frisian Experience, which is located at Greenbank Farm in Cumbria, which is in North England. And that's where Tracy and her sister Tamara run the Frisian Experience and Sanctuary. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Angie. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I feel very honored to have been invited to be part of this and share a little bit about our story and what we do. I think people are really going to be excited to learn about it. And I know that they will enjoy, after we talk today, looking at some of the different ways that they can become involved, even if they live across the world from you. You guys have a very unique program, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's start with just kind of your background. So where did you grow up? Did you have horses as a kid? What's your work life been like? How did this all kind of start? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like a lot of youngsters and people who get involved with horses, I did have a childhood obsession with them primarily the speedy kind, because I was very much into my racing. Horse racing is in my blood. But I always loved, like a lot of little girls, the black beauties of this world. So that was really instilled in me from an early age. And myself, my two sisters and brother and our parents, we sort of grew up in quite a remote part of the south of England. My parents didn't have any real horse knowledge. Although my father, like myself, really loved his racing, he wasn't a sort of practical man with horses. My mother had a lot of dogs at the time, so she did quite a lot of dog breeding and showing. But when I was just six, they decided to get a little pony for us. And as I say, we lived quite remote. So we had this little pony, Patch, who joined our family. And I never had any lessons, so I never really learned anything and just really spent hours out in the field with him, teaching myself how to ride. Most of the time I was hoiking my stirrups up and cantering him around, pretending to be a jockey, which was what my childhood dream was. As I say, my mum did a lot of dog showing and I helped her out a lot with this in the early days. And I and I guess that's where I developed, I suppose, what I'd like to think was a good eye for the confirmation of an animal and their movement which I think has sort of helped me as I've gone through life and learned more about the horses. My little claim to fame when I was a youngster was I actually became UK Junior Dog Handler of the Year in the late 1980s. And that was all just through understanding the dogs and doing my best by them. But yeah, I learned a lot of not so pleasant things about the showing world at the time in the competitive environment, but I won't go on to that too much. So, as I said, racing was in my blood and I desperately wanted to get involved in the racing scene. So work-wise, I started off, I worked on thoroughbred and Arabian studs, learned a lot about breeding, foal management, yearling preparation for the sales, not just in the UK, but I travelled overseas a fair bit and then went on to do a college course that we have over in the UK. I don't even know whether it's still going, but it's called the Management of Thoroughbreds for Racing. And as part of that, I went and worked over in France. I had a year over in in the States working for, I don't know whether you know of him, I think he's retired now, Jonathan Shepard, who was a 
Hall of Fame trainer. And I spent most of my time while I was there falling off horses or getting run away with by the older established thoroughbreds. So it really fueled my desire to try and learn how to understand horses and what they were trying to tell me. Because what I did find at that time was that very few people wanted to share their knowledge of what they'd learned about working with horses. And I think thoroughbreds being the sensitive souls that they are, are quick to tell you what they are happy with and what they're not happy with. So I guess that alone, because I was having to learn by watching and learn by falling off all the time, it sort of has helped me in my passion to try and share the knowledge that I've gained over the years with others. After the States, I went off to South Africa, spent a year over there setting up a two-year-old barn for a trainer over there. And it's interesting, you know, prepping for this chat today, it's made me really think about how I've got to where I am now and what things in my past have brought me to where I am. And when I was in South Africa, I was being sent lots of 18-month-old, two-year-old thoroughbreds that had never even had a head collar on, fresh from the field. And the trainer wanted them in his yard, ready to go into racing within a month. And a lot of the time it was just me. There wasn't anybody to hold on to the horses. And I had to learn all about their body language and how to back them on my own without getting injured. So that was my early days in racing. Various things led to me coming back to the UK. And I thought I really ought to get what was more classed as a, as a proper job. So I ended up working for the race courses. There's a race course group over here called, at the time it was called United Race Courses. And I worked for Kempton Park, Cheltenham, Epsom, a lot of the big race courses, first as a PA and then an event manager. And then I think I spent five years at the race courses, which was very interesting but I then had a complete change. And of all places, I went to work for a big retail store over here as their customer service manager. So I moved away from horses completely for several years. I'd always worked with other people's horses. And then my dad had a couple of race horses that I did a little bit of work with. But because I was at that age where life was getting more complicated. I needed to find a house to live in. I got married. I needed a job that was going to pay a mortgage, really. Hence why I worked for John Lewis for a while. But it taught me an awful lot about people. I've always been a little bit of a people pleaser. I always like to try and keep everybody happy. So being a customer service manager for a big retail store where everyone has complaints and issues that come to you. It's a good way of working out what's going to keep everybody happy. So yeah, that was pretty much the early part of my career in life. As I say, I, I got married, spent a year. We had rather a different honeymoon. We actually spent a year traveling around the world. So I am very lucky that I've got to see a lot of different places around the world. But for me, home has always been where I am now. And it was only when we came back from that year of travelling, that the opportunity to move on to 
Greenbank Farm, which is a farm that's been in our family for over a hundred years, the opportunity came up because we didn't actually think that we'd ever get onto the farm in our lifetime because of the way it was set up. There was a tenant in place on the farm who had the rights to stay on the farm for three generations. So although the farm was in our family, we didn't actually think that we'd be able to move onto the farm. But yeah, how things changed. So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, my early days and my work life. So the farm came back into your life first before Frisians, is that right? Before you were introduced to Frisians? Well, funnily enough, actually, before we went off traveling, we knew that there was the potential within the next few years for the farm to become available. And my parents would never have moved onto the farm on their own. So they asked all of us kids whether any of us were interested I wanted to go off and travel to see whether there was anywhere else in the world that I wanted to live before deciding whether this was my destiny. And I knew that if I were to move onto the farm, that I would want to be involved in horses. And I had this very romantic, naive idea that if I moved onto the farm, I wanted to fill the fields with black horses. And I didn't even know about the Frisians at this time. So, of course, I spent a lot of my time away traveling, actually looking into what the possibilities would be. And that's when I first discovered the Frisians. And, well, how can you not fall in love with them? But, of course, I didn't know anything about them at all. And I think even when I came back to the UK... I found it very difficult to find any information about them over here, which was when I made my first trip over to the home of the Frisians, of course, the Netherlands and Friesland. Yeah, and when was that? That was 2005 when I first went over. And it was one of those things, I think we spent nearly three weeks over there just because we wanted to do a bit of window shopping really and learn as much as we could and what really really struck me was the passion in everybody we met from small breeders big breeders dealers trainers going to inspections the passion there was for these horses and the desire to not try and sell me the first horse that they could, but the desire of people over there to want to help me understand them more. And I think the more I learned about them and the more I learned about the KFPS and the principles behind preserving the breed, I just thought, what is there to not like? And I think from my early days of working with thoroughbreds and being in the dog showing world, I got a real dislike for indiscriminate breeding and people who go about this in the wrong way. And I think the fact that the KFPS do so much to protect the breed, help people understand and provide all this data that helps people know what to do when it comes to breeding and their approach to even the character of the horses 
it was so refreshing to me having been put off so badly by the dog showing world and the thoroughbred industry where you'd get people who had race horses that weren't performing on the track or they got injured or there was was a temperament issue and they'd think oh well if I can't race this mare then I'll just breed with her and there was no consideration about what was being bred and what qualities you were looking to breed so my time over in the Netherlands really secured my belief that these were the only horses I wanted in my life. I'd moved away from that need for speed and the thoroughbreds and how feisty they are. And don't get me wrong, I I love thoroughbreds and I love all breeds of horses. But to me, the Frisians were so unique in so many ways. Beautiful, incredible movement. But the character, that in itself is ignored so often in so many so many breeds. So yes, I went over, spent all that time meeting hundreds and hundreds of Frisians, all absolutely beautiful in their own way. But it wasn't until seeing a lot of them that I started to see what I particularly liked in them and, you know, what I wanted to do. So my original thoughts were based around, I suppose, the centuries-old traditions of what people do with horses, breeding, bringing them on, selling them, competing them. I loved the idea of doing some carriage driving. I'd never done it before, but because of where the farm is, we're in a very, very beautiful part of the world with a little village that kind of lends itself to having a little horse-drawn carriage going round, you know, taking people on nice rides. So, In the early days, my thought was, well, okay, I'm going to look at doing some commercial driving, driving for weddings, always steered away from the funerals for various different reasons. But obviously, I know that they're commonly used as funeral horses. And I thought, well, I'll do the commercial driving, you know, we'll do carriage drives in our village, you know, we'll do some weddings And maybe that could subsidise me doing a bit of breeding, maybe bringing some on, selling them. How wrong I was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's face it, nothing about horses subsidises anything else about horses. (laughs) So true. So true. (laughs) So I really was very naive. But as I said at at the start, you know, most of what I do these days is led by my heart and what I feel is the right thing to do. I did a bit of breeding. It's not the easiest thing to do in this country. I did even sell a couple of horses in the early days, but it really wasn't for me. It didn't sit well with me because I think without wanting to be disrespectful to anybody who sells horses, because I know it's a very important thing in life, but I think sometimes in my early days, and I I think things have changed now, People were very economical with the truth when it came to selling horses. And everything I do is built around honesty and openness. And I think people are more like that these days. But equally, every Frisian that came into my life, they so quickly become part of your family. And the thought of selling them on just, it didn't work for me personally. Anyway, sort of going back to what I did. So I started 
the driving business with my first horses, who I originally went back over to the Netherlands with a plan to buy two geldings or stallions for driving. You can't come home with just two. You know, if you're going to do it, you know, because... Well, at least for us here in North America, you know, we have to fly the horses over. So if, if you put three in a crate, then you're really saving money. So the math doesn't really work out like that. But, you know, we've all uh, rationalized our purchasing decisions. Absolutely. There's a boatload of rationalization there. And I want to buy three <laughs> horses because I'm going to save money. Okay. That's right. Right. Okay. It was more more that I thought, well, hang on, if I have a pair of driving horses, what if one isn't well and I have to let somebody down on their wedding? So, you know, you have to have a spare. And so, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, and because this was what I so desperately wanted to do, kind of the budget went out the window and ended up with three of the most amazing stallions that all came from Gameiser at Hensvoud. So Dromi, Hidder and Hoitzer. I still have Hidder and Hoitzer, who are 21 now. And my plan was to bring them over, get the driving business going, and then go back and find I myself a nice broodmare. Now, I'll never forget, I went to an inspection at Drachten. I didn't even know really what an inspection was about, and it was just this sea of these beautiful black horses. I didn't even know whether it was mares, stallions, geldings, what was there. And I remember I walked across the car park and there was this one mare stood there. And honestly, I'm going cold thinking about it. That moment will stick with me for the rest of my life. And there was Femma, who she was just stood there and she just had, I was convinced she was a stallion. She just had this amazing presence about her. And I know all Frisians are beautiful, but we all know that just some have that extra X factor. And I know we shouldn't all be just taken in by the looks, you know, because it's not all about that. But I saw her and I just thought, oh, I just fell in love with her at first sight and cut a very long story short. And it is a long story. She ended up coming back with us. And she was in faulty Jasper at the time, which was equally exciting because Jasper, like many, has been an all-time favourite. He's a true icon. So, yes, the fact that she herself was amazing and she was in Falta, my favourite stallion of all time, was just an added bonus. So that's kind of how it really started, just with those four and a bit that came back to England. We weren't even on the farm when we first got them. So we had to find a livery yard over here that was prepared to take on three stallions. And yeah, we didn't actually get to move onto the farm until 2007. Wow, what a start. I, next time I need to go shopping, I'm going to I'm gonna call you up and say, let's, Tracy, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the Netherlands. It's that dangerous. sounds amazing. It's dangerous. But many people over the years have, have come to me and said, you know, would you go out and buy me a Frisian and I would never do it and I always have said to people you know don't buy unseen because what would suit one person doesn't necessarily suit another person and I could go out and buy a horse but I buy on that connection I feel when I meet a horse you know I love beautiful confirmation and I love beautiful horses but I think there's that hidden energy that you get when you connect, whether it's a person, a dog, a cat, a horse, that connection is either there or it isn't. 
Yeah. Tracy, I'm just curious. I know how precious land is in the UK and compared to the United States, a relatively small environment. How large is your farm? It's a little farm. Originally, it was 120 acres, but we're now 80 acres. That's still substantial. No, that's that's fine. In a country the size of England, that's a substantial piece of property, I would guess. It is for us. It's a big commitment to try and manage it. And the whole farm is built into rock, which in itself is very challenging. And when I first moved on here, I thought, how am I going to put horses on this land? It's rocky. It's uneven. Frisians are coming from a land where it's flat. How were they going to adjust to it? And that was a really big concern for me for a while because a lot of our grazing is on rough land. But I think they've adapted well. I think it's harder for a Frisian coming over here at a slightly older age if they've not faced hills before. But you can't go anywhere on our farm without facing a hill. But I think what it has done in lots of ways is boosted their confidence and strength in managing their size in that they've had to become more aware of where they're moving. I would love to have them on flat ground the whole time. And I think it's it's a relief to them sometimes when they do go into my arena or they go to a, one of the flat fields. I was worried that it was going to cause problems and, and injuries. And, and, you know, possibly it has over the years. But we're very lucky in that we've got the land, that the horses can lead a very natural life. We've got becks that run through the fields, woodland, and they spend most of their time out there just living a nice, natural life. How did you get from the early part of your Frisian journey to creating this Frisian experience and sanctuary and Tell us about like what each program offers. Okay. As I said earlier, there wasn't a lot of information in the UK about Frisians when I was first looking. And I was obviously through learning with my own horses, I was building up quite a lot of knowledge myself about how to deal with them. And, and I know when I first got them, I'll never forget getting on and bearing in mind I'd never had formal lessons and I'd only worked with racehorses. I got on and I thought, okay, I really don't know how to ride. And I didn't have any technical knowledge. So I sourced a local trainer who I still train with today, who has helped me learn to ride and work with all my horses. So she didn't teach me to ride, but she taught me to train the horses. And I think because I had to learn with them and I came from a place of not a lot of technical riding knowledge, that's helped me to be able to relate to a lot of people today who either have Frisians or are thinking of getting Frisians or simply want to come and spend some time with them. Now, because I was very supportive and, and passionate about what the KFPS the way they manage the breed, I had a very strong view when I came back to the UK with them that I wanted to do everything in line with their guidelines, support what they do, have the horses graded, not for my own personal benefit, but because 
by having them graded, you're helping provide that data for the stud book to know what's going on in different bloodlines. So I felt it was my responsibility to have the horses graded. And without going into full details, I had them graded. Some of them did very well, which was nice for me because it reassured me that I'd got what I thought was a good eye for good confirmation and good movement. But it also led me to get involved in in the breed society over here, which I soon realised was just being run by a small group of people who were equally passionate about the breed as me, who just wanted to help owners. So I ended up being a director and subsequently president of the Frisian Association for a while just because I wanted to help other people to learn about them. During those days, I'd have lots of people contacting me who'd been perhaps misinformed, had gone out and bought horses that weren't right for them or they didn't understand very well. And I'd have people asking whether they could come and meet my horses and just learn from what I'd learned about them over the years. What I found was that I was losing a day here, I was losing a day there because I was so passionate about wanting to share what I'd learned that people would come here. I'd spend half my day talking to them and showing them the horses and talking about everything that I'd then find I was working late into the night to get all my normal jobs done. So it was really from that that this light bulb moment happened where I thought, well, hang on, there's people out there who want to know about these horses, they want to learn about them before they go out and buy. So that's when I came up with the Frisian experience. And I just thought, if I can offer this, and people can feel that they're not taking up my time, and that they're paying a little bit of something for it, then it it works both ways. They don't feel bad for taking up my time. And I can then get some help in to help me with some other jobs to do what I needed to do. So that's kind of how it started, really, with just the idea of helping people to learn and understand more about them through what I'd learned. But it's changed and it's evolved over the years and it will continue to do that, I'm sure, because it went from that to what we are today, where for a long time it was all about people wanting to come and learn about them and experience what they're like to ride. But then I never wanted this place to become a Frisian riding school or trekking centre. But as the word got out there that I was letting people come along and ride my horses, the more people who understandably see a Frisian and just think, oh, it's my dream to ride a Frisian, they were getting in touch with me and, and wanting to come along. And we ended up doing a lot more riding experiences, which was really lovely because it made so many people's dreams come true, which was so lovely to be a part of. But over time, it was proving not to be in my horse's best interests. And everything that I've always done has always been about having their wellness as a priority. So when I started to have horses with injuries or I could just tell by looking at their eyes when they weren't happy with a rider. And and I think I have a lot of admiration for riding school horses and, and horses that 
are there for teaching people to ride because for me it's like your horse going to school with a different teacher every day and some kids can tolerate that just like some horses can but others will just switch off to it and you can see in their eyes they've kind of just given up and I didn't want that for my horses so we're now more of a a visitor centre for animal lovers so we have the experiences we offer now we have from our meet the horses tours which is where people can come here and just literally meet the horses engage with them and learn more about what we do we have yard experiences where anyone whether they've got horse experience or not can come and just spend half a day with us on the yard watch us working with the horses ask questions bring horses in and out of the field, groom a horse, wash a horse, basically just cuddle them and spend time with them on the ground, which of course you can't get if you go to an average riding school. Then we've got our stable stays, which is, I believe, still the only place in the world where you can come and spend a night next to one of the Frisians and have as much or as little interaction as you want to. And it's a great way of just having that one-to-one time with them and learning about their body language and what they're trying to tell you because they're such kind horses, aren't they? And I say to everybody, you know, I can never say a horse won't kick or bite, but I think Frisians are some of the least likely to. And because I know all our horses inside out, I know I can trust them around people that they've never met which most people with a Frisian would say the same, you know, they can do that with theirs. So we've got the stable stays, we've got my daytime equivalent, which is called my Frisian Friendship Barn, where, again, anybody with or without experience can just come and switch off from the outside world, sit in there. It's like a sitting room. There's an infrared solarium, there's a sofa, there's a coffee machine. We play music in there, there's soft lighting And they can just go in and sit with the horse, just listen to them eating, go in, cuddle them under the heat lamp, scratch them, groom them, tell them all their problems. They're not going to go and tell anybody else what's going on in their lives and they're not going to judge them. So it's all about that connection with horses. And I think this is what Frisians are perfect for. And then we've got, you know, I still do the custom experiences for anybody who wants to come along and learn more about the breed before they go out and buy. Or for anyone who's just got a love of Frisians who wants to just come and spend half a day or a day just being with them. I do still offer occasional riding, but I don't ask any of my horses to accommodate a visiting rider more than once a week. Because that way now we can give them more consistency in their training. So we do a lot of groundwork. We're constantly learning ourselves and just try and help others learn what each of the horses have taught us. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we do. Plus we rent our house out so that we can still live on the farm. So we've got the seven bedroom farmhouse that we have visitors who come and stay in there who don't necessarily want to spend time with the horses but we're here if they want to incorporate that into their family holiday. How many horses do you have on the farm now? Friesians do you have on the farm Tracy? We've got 14 now so we are at capacity for our facilities which are very limited. 
And are some of those sanctuary horses? Because part of what you do is offer sanctuary to horses in need. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? Yeah, absolutely. I will try and be brief about it. So it's something that having had three horses originally that were just abandoned with us by their owners whose lives had had changed for whatever reason, unfortunately, those owners weren't very honest with us. So I recognised there was a need for a place where people who suddenly found their lives had been turned upside down and they had a Frisian in their life that they couldn't then look after. I wanted to offer a space here, whether it was temporary or permanent, for those owners to be able to send their horses to a place that understood Frisians where they could be looked after until the owners got themselves back on their feet or as is the case now, we've had a number that have been surrendered to us that, you know, we can offer a home for life. So, as I said, you know, we are at capacity now, which is why, Scott, Angie, I I know we spoke earlier this year because I wanted to look into providing a foster programme because at any point I could have a call about a Frisian in need. I'm currently talking to a couple of people at the moment and hoping that with the advice I can give them, that they'll be in a position where they can keep that Frisian in their life and not have to sell them on not have to put them down. If they need to come here, then obviously I don't want to have to turn anybody away. So we've got a database of potential foster homes now so that we know that even if a horse comes to us after an initial assessment, there are people and places out there that we'd be able to place a Frisian in need, but they'd always for their lifetime be under our our care and guidance. Yeah, what you're describing is very similar to what Fenway Foundation does in regard to surrenders and rescues and then trying to find a home for them. And yes, we have the same policy in regard to having permanent oversight of that horse to ensure that they are properly cared for. So what you're trying to do is very admirable. And I know it's challenging because you want to make sure that when that horse goes to a foster home, it's going to be appropriately cared for and and looked after. Absolutely. And everything that you do at at Fenway, I mean, that's inspired me for years. A lot of our visitors, everybody is is pointed in your direction because of all the research you do and and the help that you offer to these horses. And, you know, I think it was through what you do that I thought, well, you know, there's not a huge demand in this country, fortunately, for Frisians needing rescue and support. But at least if I can provide that little channel and that little space for if if that does happen, then at least people can know that we're here and their horses aren't going to end up in a place where they're completely misunderstood. There's a lot of very kind people out there who'd be happy to take on a Frisian, even if it can't be ridden. And I think that's one of the things a lot of what we do is trying to explain to people that horses, Frisians, you know, it's not just about the riding. You know, we've got horses here that are under our sanctuary scheme or even one that I've bred that they'll never be sound for riding, but they can still live a happy, fulfilling life, even just doing a bit of groundwork, but just being loved and cared for. They don't have to be put down just because they can't be ridden. It's funny that you say that because we're constantly having this conversation at Fenway. And for us, 
the writing is the least important thing. There's just so much that you gain from just being around horses, having a relationship with a horse. And I love my barn chores. You know, that's my favorite time of my day, every morning and every evening. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where I've had visitors here this morning, you know, a lady and her two daughters in our friendship barn. They've been riding, but they're not that keen on it, but they love animals. They've never been up close and personal to a a Frisian or a big horse, but they spent time in there just getting to know him and picking up on that energy that they emit. You know, I've had another lady on one of our yard experiences doing a little bit around the yard. She doesn't have to muck out or anything like that, but just being with the horses, even just walking around with them. That's a kind of therapy on its own, right? Yeah. I never wanted to really call ourselves a therapy centre, but that's basically what we have become and are becoming. And this is where the stable stays have been very interesting because I don't know when people arrive, whether they have any horse experience. And almost without fail, every single person when they arrive, if I ask them, they say, oh, well, I rode a horse once. So it's that it's changing that mindset of, well, if it's a horse, surely it's just there for riding. Well, no, it's not. So we're just in our own little way trying to help people understand that there's far more to them. And giving them the the opportunity because the lady on our yard experience today, she goes and rides at different places and she says she sees people turn up. They don't even talk to the horse. They just get on the horse, ride it, get off, don't say thank you, don't talk to it and go. And that's not my kind of person. I've said this a hundred times about Frisians. They ask so little and give so much. Oh my goodness, that don't they just. Yeah. And that's just putting your hands on them and, and looking into their eyes and knowing that, that there's a recognition between the two of you is very rewarding. It is. I mean, the amount of people that I've had turn up here who, honestly, they've walked onto the yard and we m- might have three or four of them in the in the stables, a couple roaming free because we treat them like big dogs and some of them just roam free on the yard. And they turn up and they're in tears because – there's something so special about the Frisians. And I was picked up on this the other day by a very good friend. He said to me, how do you know that Frisians are that different? What other breeds have you worked with? And I thought, that's a fair point. I have worked with thoroughbreds and some other horses, but most of my time has been with Frisians. And I do genuinely think they, from what I've experienced of other breeds, they are different in so many ways. They're so intuitive, so in touch with human emotions. Well, we had just, uh, not to be late, we had Tennessee walkers on the farm. Those were our first horses. And then we got Frisians and we'd have visitors come to the farm and the horses would be out in pasture and the walkers would just stay out there and graze. And the Frisians would come to the fence line and say, oh, people, I think I want to get to know you. And it was incredible to watch every Frisian come to the fence line and say, hello. They just just love people, don't they? Yeah, they very much do. I love it. I want to switch gears real quick because any of us that follow your social media, we've been following Hannes's sarcoid journey, and it's so unique. I would love for you to share a little bit of that with the audience so that they can 
one, learn a little bit more about this really unusual sarcoid that he had, but also for anybody that's keeping up with him, I think they would love to hear how he's doing today. It's quite a story. Oh, honestly, this little horse has touched so many hearts in his lifetime since he's been here. And he is the reason why we started the sanctuary, to be honest, because he was the first one that was abandoned with us. And he arrived with us in 2015. He, he had a sarcoid already above his eye. It was quite small. And over the years, we've worked with my vet and with Professor Nottenbelt, who's, who's the world's leading specialist in sarcoids, to try and manage this. We've done chemotherapy injections. He's had laser treatment, you know, and each time one popped up, we'd deal with it. But obviously, it's in a very sensitive area. Unfortunately, none of the treatments have stopped it completely. And I was made very aware of it right from the start that it was something we were going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. And while they were on the outside of his eye, they were manageable. But then what happened at the end of last year, he got this growth within his eye. And it was inside the eye on the conjunctive eye. So just in the corner. And we monitored it for a while because we didn't know whether it was just like a, a little wart or, you know, he'd got a little grain of dirt in there or something. So we treated it, you know, with the usual eye drops. And I don't claim to know anything veterinary, by the way. So I'm, I'm not very good on my technical knowledge of things. So anyway, went to see my vet and he hoped that it was just something called a habronema which I'd actually not heard of it before, but it's where basically a worm can get in there in the soft mucous membranes. And so we literally treated him with a wormer, hoping that it was just going to disappear. I kind of knew my instinct was telling me that it wasn't that, but, you know, we had to give that a go to start with. It grew and grew. So then there was the thought that it was a squamous cell carcinoma, which is the most common form of tumour in the eye, I believe. There was a lot of nervousness about doing a biopsy on it because there was so much sarcoid cell tissue in that whole area around his eye. Obviously, by damaging the skin, then there was the risk of, of making it quite aggressive. But we needed to find out what it was because it was growing so quick. So we had the biopsy done and it came back as negative as a squamous cell carcinoma and the results were sent to Professor Nottenbelt, and he said that this was just the sixth case of a conjunctival sarcoid that he'd ever been involved with, and the last case was 10 years ago. So quite rare, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You'd like to think that, given that he is considered the world's leading specialist, that he would have heard about them, even if they weren't cases that he was dealing with. So it's been very much a learning game for everybody. We never really knew what the result was going to be. So we started off with chemotherapy injections into the growth. Lots of people had talked about removing the whole eye. And in lots of ways, I would have loved to have done that. But it comes back to what I said before. If you disturb the skin and there's lots of cancerous cells in there, we could have potentially ended up with giving him the worst end to his life he could possibly have by aggravating all these sarcoids and him getting a whole load of basically all the sarcoids getting aggressive and the area not healing. So we started off with the injections in the hope that they were going to make it shrivel up and die. 
but it just wasn't happening. And we got to the point where we had to consider surgery because it was the only option for him because we just didn't want to go for the full eye removal. So we went to a fantastic vet, fortunately very locally, at an organisation called Veterinary Vision. And we put him into the surgery, not knowing really whether he would come out of it, because obviously if they found that this sarcoid had grown into the bone and gone further, then the kindest thing would have been to not pull him through. But Chris, the vet, he went in and he managed to cut out the sarcoid, which was about five centimetres in length, sitting right behind his eye. Unfortunately, the results afterwards do show that the cancerous cells went right to the edge of what was removed. So I know that there is a huge risk that it's growing again behind his eye. But there's not a great deal more that we can do about it at this stage. He's on lots of different natural supplements. People on social media have been so kind, so generous in helping us cover the costs of all of this, but also in in their suggestions and their ideas. A lot of people would have got irritated with somebody saying how you should treat your horse, but I welcome anybody's suggestions. We can't always take up all their ideas and suggestions, but it's lovely to know how much care there's been out there for him and you know the journey that he's gone through and he's going to continue to go through for the rest of his days but as I've said in in all the videos he will tell me when he's had enough because his whole demeanor will let me know he's very stoic and he got quite grumpy at times with what he was having to go through but now we've got the one out of his eye and we've treated some of the ones on the outside. He's back to his really happy, cheerful self. Even Holly, who works with me, you know, she's been around the horses here since she was four. She does a lot of groundwork with him now, takes him out on some hacks. We don't ask anything much of him. We just try and keep him fit and supple and and happy. And he's happy Because he's an active-minded Frisian, you'll know with all of yours, you know, some want to be doing more than others. And he loves to be doing and he loves to be centre of attention. So he's not got the best of legs. He's not got the best of feet. And obviously he's not got the best of skin. But he can still have a happy life just doing the odd little bits and pieces here. He's done stable stays quite a lot. He's actually going to take part in a little medieval event in our local village in September because he loves doing it. You can see by his reaction to everybody who comes up to admire him. As I say, he just loves being centre of attention. Yeah, I watched you had a live hack video, which I love to watch, by the way. Those are so cool. And I I think it was his first time out for a while. And he, he looked like such a happy guy. So... That's incredible. I want to ask you about the British Farming Awards. I hear that you've been nominated. So tell us a little bit about that award and what that means to you guys. Yeah, it was a a big surprise to me, actually, because unbeknown to me, my darling sister Tamara had actually put us forward for this, for diversification of the year. And I think she'd not told me because she knows I'm not very good at these sorts of things. And also, it's the farming industry. And I suppose because we're equestrian and 
I don't know how it works in the States so much, but horses over here aren't seen as agricultural. Even though all the farms were originally built on horsepower, they're not considered agricultural in the traditional sense because they're not being used to work the land. So I think the fact that the farming industry as a whole was able to look at what we're doing and shortlist us for this award makes us really proud and it's really nice to know that things might be changing because we're not considered farmers even though we have a farm that we need to manage and we choose to manage it in a different way and have horses here who let's face it they do wreck the land a lot of the time it's really lovely to have been recognized by such a traditional industry for doing something outside of the traditional farming ways of you know producing animals or producing crops so that was a lovely thing to happen recently that's really sweet that she did that <laughs> for you <laughs> it's just a surprise absolutely so listening to your whole story, we can see how everything has evolved. I have to tell you guys, please go out on, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, and you guys also have a website, I know as well, and we'll ask you to give us those in a moment. But I feel like there's just more and more public interest for what you're doing all the time. So I'm so curious, you know, where do you see your farm, your program going in the next five, 10 years? I mean, do you have plans for the next evolution? Thank you for mentioning all our social media, because obviously we, we do a lot on there. And it's such a big part of what we do now, primarily thanks to the, the pandemic. But moving forward for what we do here, I think I've built a lot of confidence through the feedback from people that what we're doing is right. Everything that I've always done, as I said at the start, it's done from the heart and what I believe is the right thing to do and the right thing for our horses. I think it will always change here to suit the horses we have, to suit the team, but we are at a bit of a crossroads because we want to keep helping people understand and to provide a better life for our Frisian horses and any others that cross our path. But to carry on doing this, we are at that point where we are looking for or we need a substantial investment in what we've got here because we've got the farm, but we just don't have the facilities to enhance what we currently offer and to provide the life that we'd like to provide for the horses in our care, whilst also giving those meaningful experiences to so many of our visitors and followers. That's where we're at at the moment. Not necessarily quite sure how to go about doing that. But I think the more we do, the more we see the whole farm as a sanctuary, not just for the horses now, but also for our visitors because there's been such an impact on people's lives through them coming to the farm and spending time with the horses that we want to keep doing that. And obviously, I'm not getting any younger, you know, there's only so much that I can do. <laughs> I've got a fantastic team around me, you know, Jodie and Hull and Hull's sister Frey, who've been around here for over 10 years, you know, they know all the horses inside out. And we've had talks about creating a Frisian village here. 
that would be quite tricky because we're in the Lake District National Park and planning issues are a little bit of a tricky subject. But so many people look at our place and say, oh, you could do this, you could do that. There's so many different avenues that we could go down. But sadly, there are quite large financial limitations to be able to do those things. So I think that's where just keep doing what we're doing and believing in what we do and sharing it to everybody and anybody, you know, whether it's to our visitors coming here, whether to people who are joining us online through our social media, anybody who helps us share our story of what we do. I'm a great believer in sort of manifesting good and the good things will come. If we believe in it and we keep doing what we're doing and doing it in the right way for the benefit of the horses and the benefit of our visitors, that's going to show us the way forward, I'm hoping. <laughs> so where can people find out more? What, what's your website? How can they find you on social media if they want to learn more? So our website, you can put in either thefriesianexperience.org or blackhorses.co.uk. Both will take you to our website. There's lots of information on there about all the horses and what we do. It's not necessarily always as up to date as our social media, as I think a lot of people find with websites. But on there, you can look at supporting us through becoming a patron, even sponsoring one of the horses, and you can follow theirs and our journey through all the different social media platforms. We try and get a bit out on everything. Primarily, we do a lot on Facebook. So we have our main Facebook page, The Frisian Experience. And then for those who don't mind their newsfeed being filled up with lots of very random day-to-day -day videos of what goes on at the farm, then we have a, a group called The Frisian Experience Behind the Scenes. So anyone's welcome to join that. I didn't know you had that. I'll have to check that out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's very random. We don't always edit what we put on there. So it is literally, I think this morning I did a scenery shot because it was beautiful here this morning. So the horses out in the field, the hills in the background, the sunrise. And then, you know, another video might be of us having coffee time and having a chat or one of the horses doing a bit of training and us talking about it. So as I say, that's very random, that group, but it's quite entertaining at times. It's amazing how social media also allows us to connect people that have never seen a Frisian horse in person with ours on social media. And at Fenway, we one of the most popular videos at the moment for us that people just keep commenting on is this just this random video of one of the horses having his legs clipped so we can check the health under the hair. You know, we do that at least once a year, but people just keep commenting on it. And so what I've learned about the social media is it's not so much by putting up this perfect video of this perfectly groomed horse. They just love to see the day to day. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting that you've mentioned that because it is like sometimes the videos don't flow and I think, oh, I can't do it. And it is those those videos that they just happen. It's a random thing and people seem to love it. And that's why I think it's great to just keep throwing the stuff out there and 
people find you through random little videos and fall in love with the Frisians for what they are. And I think that's going back to the Hunnis story. I worried when I set up the GoFundMe to raise funds for his, his treatment that because we don't let people come and ride here so much now, would there be the support out there? And if people hadn't come and met him, would they want to support him? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely mind-blowing. The support from all around the world, from people who just literally seen videos of him and the connection they felt with him and what he was going through. It's a fascinating place, this social media world, isn't it? <laughs> it yes. Is. yes. We're almost out of time. So the last question I want to ask you is, what do you want the world to know about Frisian horses? Like if, if no one has seen one in person, if they haven't experienced it for themselves, what is it that your message would be for the world about Frisian horses? Oh, now you see there's so many things, isn't there? But I have to say that anybody with a love of animals needs to know that the Frisian is one of the kindest most spiritual animals I think you could ever meet in your life. So if you get the opportunity to meet one, then take that with open arms because as Scott said so beautifully before, they give so much back and they expect very little in return. That's so true. Well, this has been wonderful. And like we've mentioned, please Go out and find the Frisian experience online or on social media. You will not be disappointed. I love to watch all of your videos. And a lot of people have a bucket list for, you know, when they get older, things they want to do. But I have a horse bucket list. So I have all these <laughs> horse-related trips on my bucket list. And I'm dying to come visit you. So that oh, is, you can expect that. me on your doorstep one day. <laughs> oh, I would absolutely love that all come over you we love our visitors we absolutely do and honestly thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this and thank you for everything all of you do for these horses because that in itself is helping secure their future and help people to understand more about them so I have so much admiration for everything you do and I'm as I said, so grateful for you inviting me to be part of this. That's very kind of you to say, Tracy. We appreciate what you're doing for the breed in, in the UK. So thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you'll join us soon for another episode of the Frisian Advocate. Do you have a Frisian story to tell? Email us at info at fenwayfoundation.com and we'll add you to the lineup.